We work in pharma and biotech. What if everything we know about developing digital therapeutics is wrong? I'm Jeff Stewart of Cineos Health Consulting. Last time, we discussed digital therapeutic commercialization. I'm joined today by Dr. Shaheen Lockham, CMO, Chief Medical Officer of Click Therapeutics. We pierce through the misconceptions experienced clinicians have about digital therapeutic development. Digital therapeutic development and approval next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Shaheen Lakan, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So you are the Chief Medical Officer of Click Therapeutics. Tell me, if you're a Chief Medical Officer in a therapeutics company that's not digital therapeutics, most of the audience would know what that means. What's a Chief Medical Officer in a digital therapeutics company do? What a CMO in a digital therapeutics company does is essentially try to take the same principle as what I would call maybe traditional, you know, the biopharmaceutical types of drug development, validation, regulatory exercises, and getting solutions in the hands of patients, but applying those same principles to a digital solution, particularly one that just sits on the smartphone, a application that is meant to treat a disease. The ones that you work on with Click, are they all in the CNS space and it's trying to modify behavior particularly? Behavior is a big target. It's the final pathway that we want. All our pathophysiology, all the biology that we interface with eventually gets manifested in behaviors, but it doesn't just exist in CNS diseases, right? Classic psychiatric or neurological or neuropsychiatric diseases. We've since the last year, spanned outside of it into cardiometabolic diseases, autoimmune diseases, you name it. There is a biobehavioral basis to it. We can treat it. So it sounds a lot like what somebody might do as a chief medical officer for anything. You're doing trials. You're looking at data that come out the other end. What's different? The different is our delivery mechanism and that our therapeutics is so nascent that Even the regulators, the health plans and payers, clinicians, patients aren't as familiar or aware with its potential outside of entertainment. You know, the apps on your phone and monitoring and tracking your bank accounts and balances and calendar and weather, trying to apply that, take this into your brain and say, hey, this could actually treat your serious conditions. That's a tough battle. So most of the time, it's not just designing, developing, and commercializing solutions. It's actually educating and training and increasing the awareness out there of this emerging technology as a therapeutic. You're in the trenches in the regulatory space on this. How is the agency dealing with therapeutics that are digital? Is it therapeutic? Is it a medical device? Is it a third path that has some other path, a regulatory path? Yes. Yeah. Once a sponsor develops a clinical development plan and says, I'm going to develop a therapy, lo and behold, they always have to look at, well, what are the regulatory milestones and then what's beyond that? Fortunately, over the maybe five years or so, the agency has classified what we do in prescription digital therapeutics as software as a medical device. They found it more akin to medical devices, even tangible medical devices, name it, they have software components, than biologics and drugs. So that's the center that evaluates it. 
And they've toyed with different approval pathways, but we've landed on two in the United States. It's the de novo pathway that, just like it sounds, it's brand new. There's no predicate or there's no other technology that has gone through the rigorous review process with the agency for a similar disease or a similar technology basis. So you file a de novo application. If there is already a technology or predicate out there that has been cleared by the FDA for a similar indication, then you could go through a 510K. That's where you try to identify equivalents that you're just as safe and tolerable and efficacious as other solutions out there. And a 510K refers to medical devices. Correct. So how close do you have to be to be in the 510K process? You know, that's being tested all the time. It could be as closeness that you are treating commonalities of diseases like psychiatric diseases with computerized behavioral interventions. Or it has to be specifically, well, I'm only treating, let's say, irritable bowel syndrome, and therefore I can only apply through 510K. Fortunately, the agency actually has a mechanism where they could help you make that determination before you even file. And that's a 513G application. Which one do you want as a manufacturer? I have a guess. My guess is I would want a 510K every time because it's a well-trod pathway. I'm not going to say it doesn't have as strict of requirements, but certainly faster approval times that I've seen in the past for medical devices over a traditional BLA, biologics licensing application, or a new drug application. Is that also where you sit? Are you, I don't want to say angling to try to get in the 510k pathway, or does it matter? The question I could address in a couple respects, but the bottom line is it depends. You know, certain times it's all about speed to market and there is a very suitable predicate out there. So let's go through the 510K, a shorter reviewer period, right? A little bit less novelty in creating new standards and human factors research and so on that goes along with it. However, when you're in my space, there's not too many solutions out there that have appropriate predicates, or maybe you don't even want to be benchmarked against that predicate. You're treating it in a novel way, and therefore it needs to have the bona fide de novo classification, even though the review period will be longer, the fruits of your labor will be worth it. How so? That surprises me a little bit. What would make it suddenly better to have gone through this pathway? I'm assuming from a commercial perspective or an access perspective, but educate me. Yeah, very much so from an access perspective, but also, frankly, patients, clinicians, they're their own consumer, right? They digest this and they don't just take for face value what a regulator says or what a health plan puts onto formulary. So it's actually for all the stakeholders. And these are the scenarios in which de novo actually might be better when you do have a maybe suitable predicate if they're using old technology. There's a term that I use, it's called Prescription Digital Therapeutics, or PDT 2.0. And when I mention 2.0, I have to say 1.0, right? 1.0 might be those solutions that are solely based on cognitive behavioral therapy. They are only effectuating a single domain using what I would call maybe psychoeducation. So they digitized some psychoeducation because they saw in face-to-face therapy, they could treat your disease. And I'll give you a prototypical example. Think about insomnia. Well, the first line treatment in insomnia is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI. So if you translate that, put into an application, generate the evidence behind it, I think you'll get your label and there are a handful of solutions that are out there. But if you're going beyond the psychoeducation, psychotherapy, collectively cognitive behavioral therapy, if you're doing something 
that is actually rewiring the brain, fixing faulty brain circuits, then sometimes you just don't want to be competing in that landscape. You're creating a brand new category. You're attaching and attacking new domains of the disease. That's what PDT 2.0 comes into place. And so at Click Therapeutics, all we do is actually create PDT 2.0s. So sometimes it's better to go de novo. So you're not compared to older base solutions and those stakeholders are used to lower level evidence. Anecdotal experience with digital therapeutics companies that are going down the 2.0 route is that it's something that was not necessarily in licensed by people that had nothing to do with the technology. It's the inventors and they don't have to convince anyone else. They found this discovery. They thought it would be great as a treatment modality. And so they pursued it. Is that what you're seeing also out there in digital therapeutics more generally? It's I wouldn't even say early days of monoclonal antibodies, but kind of where the ones that invented it more or less then left academia and tried to develop it because nobody out there was. There is an element of that. You have inventors of a new technology that's on the verge of being a therapeutic. And because that kind of market of that landscape is nascent to cultivate it further, they might branch off and develop them on their own. I believe that we are there and moving on the cusp of now these being part of search and evaluation efforts to either in or out license, essentially. I like the corollary with other categories of medicine. I mean, every 20 years or so, you see a new category of medicine test clinical development. That means sponsors of therapeutics, test the regulatory bodies, test the healthcare plans and payers for access, and then test the end users. I mean, patients and clinicians as prescribers that are out there. We saw that with small molecular entities, biologics, and you mentioned the monoclonal antibodies, genomic editing and CRISPR-based technologies. And more recently, obviously it took a pandemic to light it on fire, but mRNA-based solutions, and that was in vaccinations, but we're seeing a lot of therapeutics come to the pipeline. Fortunately, in this industry, the regulators have got it with clear-cut pathways Health plans and access are just about to get it, but I think it needs a proof point. It needs a PDT 2.0 that has an evidence dossier that is not just in a well-controlled, robust, I mean, sham-controlled and double-masked and blinded type of study, but also real-world evidence and repeat dosages, neurophysiological validations, bringing fMRI and EEG evidence along with it. That's going to really test the waters, and then you're going to see an onslaught of licensing going on. I used to work in the M&A, so I have at least past experience with what buy side looks for, what the sell side tries to package for the buy side. And the more sophisticated the buy side or the sell side, the more they were concerned about things that were outside the science. It wasn't just a good science story. It wasn't just about the evidence. It was about manufacturing and supply. With digital therapeutics, I have no idea, and I would think most of our listeners would have no idea what the equivalents are. Are there clean, good, well-established, quote-unquote, manufacturing and supply that one really should adhere to, and that's what you're being asked on the M&A side by the more sophisticated investors or buyers? Or is it really just you can work with anyone and working with anyone's fine? I would certainly say it's the former, and I'll make a shout out to our chief financial officer, Randall Stanicky. So he 
served as a sell-side analyst in Wall Street, covering biotech companies and life science companies for around 25 years or so, and then decided to make the leap and join Click Therapeutics around just over two years ago to take this forward and really take this forward. You know, the crux of the matter is actually, no, there are good manufacturing that is involved in any due diligence. And do you have the quality management solutions? Do you have the scalability where each time that you are revving up a new product, it's becoming more efficient, time, cost, and I'll even add probability of success, and therefore a platform type of asset. Yes, these are scalable solutions, but what are your distribution channels? Are you integrated in EHRs, into workflows, patient support services and wraparound services, or are you a single solution and point provider and you can't integrate into these type of things? No, we have a very sophisticated analyst pool that are constantly asking these questions and we show them, nope, this is scalable. There are good manufacturing processes, somewhat different than drugs, but they do follow the same principles of fidelity, patient interest, quality of evidence, scalability factors, all of that. Oh, that's interesting. And this is going to be a very basic question. Do you have to be on Android and iPhone and maybe even the Google phone? Or at least in the US, do you just have to be in the iPhone? That's a great question. And, and my simple response is absolutely, because it's not arbitrary. It's not random who uses a iPhone and Android. In fact, there are a lot of social determinants of health, you know, income level, socioeconomic status, education levels that actually clearly divide both of these users. So if you're designing solutions just for one of those single operating systems and smartphone software, you are excluding a population and not at random, right? We have products that are spanning from migraine, schizophrenia, major depressive disorder that affects all walks of life. And we intentionally want to cover 99% of all owners that are out there. So we go through both Android and iOS. And do you work XUS? Uh, so it might be an unfair question to ask you some XUS questions, but I do have some. Oh, yes, we absolutely work XUS because we have multinational partners like Atsuka Pharmaceuticals and Beringer Ingelheim. Okay, so here are my two questions. XUS is the uh, European Medical Agency. Is that essentially the same process or a similar process to the FDA or is one ahead of behind? Then the other question is, again, on phones. I read, and it's not my field at all, that Google phones are the biggest phone XUS by a large margin, at least in parts of the world. Does that mean that you have to expand past where you currently are to go XUS? Oh, very much so. So we actually take a internationalization first approach and a mobile first approach in designing our solutions and that they do have XUS coverage. And that's actually not just simply what the operating system is. It's also including what's the predominant text type there, right? We have SMS messaging. And if you have iPhones, obviously iMessaging, but you might be in jurisdictions where it's actually WhatsApp and other type of mediums too. So you have to take that into the fold. The regulatory agencies now, they differ across the board. I would say within Europe, it's not necessarily just the EMA as a whole. It's uh, Germany. If you take their BFAR model, they've created a DIGA classification for these digital types of tools and interventions that's taken it a step further. Because it's not just a health regulator now allowing for clearances and market authorizations, it's also a payer. It's a statutory health system that pays for the solution. They tied both of them together. 
So you have to be on solutions and in the language of the native population that you're trying to treat and generate the evidence in this reasonable period of time. You get a provisional approval. You're allowed a year to now actually show me what's the clinical robustness and economic evidence too to determine pricing. All right. I have a two-part final question. They're very similar. As a chief medical officer, you probably had preconceived notions or experience on what a digital therapeutic 1.0 or 2.0 was going to be like. What's something that you found out in being in this field that was different from your expectations? And the related question, what do you think that audience members who work in pharma might be surprised to learn about digital therapeutics? Oh, I really appreciate both of these questions. On the former, I would say I was really surprised when I had to challenge my own assumptions. You know, sometimes we make these unconscious or conscious biased judgments, right? Or thoughts, assumptions that, well, maybe these technologies are good for a certain skew of the population, a certain age group, a certain location. I've learned to challenge them. And we actually do a lot of feasibility, usability, acceptability research before we embarked on a full phase development that I'm creating a solution for this disease. And I'll tell you, I'm surprised how many times I've been wrong with those assumptions. I'll take, for instance, in schizophrenia and smartphones. Some people really, really, even including a few of our advisors and KOLs said, hey, I think that's kind of silly. You know, that's a population with inherent paranoia and distrust and maybe even poor smartphone ownership and usage. I said, well, no, that's your preconceived notion. Let me go out there. Let me do that market research. Let me actually open up a study and see, are they going to allow us to open the sensors on your smartphone? Are they going to allow us to exchange engagement data that allow us to enter into their therapeutic journey? Lo and behold, we did those studies, we did those research, and they did. And we do this with each disease, each population, and a highly representative type of matter. So that's the first thing that set me off course and really challenged my assumptions there. You know, to the latter part of your question, when it comes to biopharmaceutical type of companies, there is so much in how I've built and how we've built Click Therapeutics as a digital biotech. In fact, the secret sauce that we have is we speak pharma. We apply the same drug design principles to my digital interventions. So in biopharma, you're creating a catalog of different assets and you test them against molecular assays or animal models. Well, we just happen to do those in creating a catalog of what I call dynamos. These are digital neuroactivation and modulations basically small little snippets of code that could rewire the brain. And we put them into small, short studies of their prototypes. And if I get an efficacy signal, then I would advance that asset. But if I didn't apply the drug design principles, then these would just be academic or lab experiments. I need to look at target engagement. I need to look, is it activating the brain? Is it hitting some of those endpoints that are out there? So I'm surprised each time I'm applying the same pharma rigor that I did when I was developing drugs into what I'm doing now as a digital therapeutics. Well, that's been very helpful. Thanks so much, Shaheen Lachan, for joining us on the Cineo South podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I love your facilitation. Yeah. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at 
insightshub.health. Sineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.